and Chris. Lord, we just pray a blessing over Chris as well. Lord, we thank you for the word that he's got for us. Lord, the message that he's going to bring. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would bless his communication and that he would remember it's the afternoon. Amen. Well, good afternoon. Uh, it's such a privilege to be here. It's just such it's been such a great time. It really has. I'm, I'm, well, how do I follow that, really? So, bless you, Dot and Josh and family, just to be part of your story. That's so wonderful. Now, let me tell you a story. Not so very long ago, when I was about 11 years old, my father, excellent man that he is, bought me a Daimler Steyr Putsch Maxi moped. Some of you may be old enough to remember what one of those things looks like, but for those of you that don't, it was essentially a heavy-duty bicycle with a small engine on. And I loved that bike. I have, in moments of weakness, I find myself looking on eBay to see if there's ones available, but they're actually quite valuable now. But it, it was essentially so uncool, it was actually cool. And if you don't get that, then I can't help you. You physically had to pedal the thing to get the engine going. And uh, when this story takes place, the scene you have to picture before you is the back garden of my parents' home. You see, I can see that some of you are thinking, what parent in their right mind would buy their child a moped at 11 years of age? Well, my father ran an engineering workshop in the deep countryside in a village called Defford. And surrounding this workshop was this enormous field. And my elder brother and I would use that field for conducting all sorts of dangerous experiments. The Putsch Maxi Moped episode being one such experiment on a long list. However, the story takes place in my parents' back garden. I'd just taken delivery of said moped. And we were quite... Um, how do I describe this? We were quite advanced in our thinking, and bear in mind this was in the days before Google. We knew that there were certain modifications that you could perform that would make the machine perform far outside its originally designed parameters. So it was but the work of a moment to remove the exhaust system and take out from the inside of it the silencing baffle. Now the silencing baffle what it does, essentially, is make the engine run nice and smooth, but it restricts the gases flowing out of the exhaust, and that slows you down. So remove it, of course, you go much quicker. There is a downside to that, of course, in that it makes it very, very, very loud. In fact, people have told me, who were stood in close proximity of the Putsch Maxi when it went past you at full chat, they actually thought the second coming of Christ had just happened and that they'd been left behind. It was loud. But to the untrained eye, you could look at it and it looked box standard. 
nothing going on here, officer. And we'd also realized <laughs> we, we also realized that there were exciting ingredients that you could put in the fuel that again would enhance its performance. The favorite of these, oh man, how did I get onto this? The favorite of these was radio control model aircraft fuel, which had a high concentration of methanol and ether. They put it in rocket engines and they put it in drag bikes and things like that. And that would really make your machine go like a rocket. But please, if anybody is here this afternoon and they have a legal road-going motorcycle, do not do this, okay? I'm serious. This is the disclaimer part. Now, with a tank full of special Jelf 75 and modified exhaust system, we thought we'd better give it a quick test before we put it out to graze, so to speak, um, in the fields around Defford. My parents' garden, although it was quite a big garden, it wasn't suitably long enough to get a decent turn of speed. And we were also a little bit fearful about the neighbors' windows because we didn't want to break them. So what to do? Well, the playing fields of Purdyswell were but a mile away. What better solution? And two minds with but one thought, we opened the back door and pushed, I say pushed, the putch maxi towards the playing fields of Purdyswell. We hadn't got very far. In fact, I think we'd got as far as Purdyswell Street, which is a narrow, straight, very quiet side road. Nothing exciting ever happens in Purdyswell Street, okay? But we concluded quite quickly that the push maxi was quite heavy. And pushing it simply ate into experimental development time. So again, two minds with but one thought. My brother looked at me, swung his leg over the saddle. You had a saddle, not a seat. And he said, Chris, I'm going to ride it to the end of the road. Give us a push. Because we'd taken the pedals off at that point because we realized they were so uncool and they slowed you down. And I thought at the time, what an excellent idea. I dutifully gave the bike and my brother a good hard shove and the thing roared into life and he disappeared up the road in a cloud of blue methanol fumes. And then the police came around the corner. <laughs> it's true what they say, that in moments of extreme stress, you see things in slow motion. And it's true. This police car swept round the corner, lights on, sirens going, and he adroitly boxed my brother into, in between his car and the wall. And I arrived on the scene some 30 seconds later, having run up the road as fast as my little legs would carry me. And I arrived just as this policeman was extracting himself from the car. I mean, he, Policemen are always big when you're 11 years old, but he was big. I mean, he was like something off Transformers. He unfolded himself. <laughs> what do you think you're doing, sunshine? <laughs> and they know, don't they, policemen? They just know. What do you think you're doing with that motorcycle? <laughs> I don't know, officer. You don't know. Where did you get it from? My dad gave it to me. Pardon? 
My dad gave it to me all the time. Well, well, well. I hope you wasn't a thinking of riding that said moped on the Purdyswell playing fields and causing a public nuisance. And he then proceeded to read us the riot act. Our list of offences was as long as it was comprehensive. Driving with undue care and attention, driving with no license, driving with no tax, driving with no MOT, driving with no crash helmets. There was something in there about the non-observant of suitable fuels for pursuant in the Highways Act or something like that. And the list just went on and on. And to my young mind, I could picture the judge reaching for his gavel and black cap and us being led away to a point of execution. My, my, my point in all of this is that we broke the law. In fact, we didn't just break it once. We broke it multiple times and in many places. And I'm sure that some of you are sat there thinking, well, he was a bit mean. He was spoiling your fun. There's probably others that are think, of you that are thinking, well, good on him. He was doing his job. And probably there's even more of you thinking you should have been led away to a home for delinquent children. And of course, they're all appropriate responses. But the reason I tell you that story is because we broke the law. And it's the law that I want to talk to you about this morning. And it's from chapter 20, and it's a well-known passage of Scripture. It's the point at which God gives to the nation of Israel the law, the Ten Commandments. And let me just put this in context for you. In chapter 19, Moses is leading this huge nation. It's a nation that has grown, and it's grown rapidly. And as a nation, they have seen God's spectacular deliverance as they have come out of Egypt. And yet, in chapter 19, Moses', Moses time, more, more and more of it is being taken up by judge, for, for judging the people, for making good decrees over delinquent people. And he's encouraged in chapter 19, Moses, why don't you put, a, put aside wise and trustworthy men who can judge some of these smaller cases, and then the really difficult ones we'll bring before you. And it was good advice, and that's what no Moses does. But in chapter 20, God has this meeting with Moses. He says to Moses, come up here, and calls to Moses, and Moses goes up to him on Mount Sinai, and God delivers the Ten Commandments to him. It's important to note here that although the law, in a sense, hasn't been formally given, you can see in various chapters, certainly in chapter 18, that there is an expectation that God's statutes and God's decrees would be implemented, even though the full law had not been given. And then we have this episode, the full majesty of the law and the commandments are given and we haven't time this afternoon to go into each one but I would really encourage you if you get chance this week just to spend a few minutes thinking over each one and look at what the consequences might be or might have been 
if mankind had observed these fully as God intended. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You'll honour, you should honour your father and mother. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour, and you shall not covet your neighbour or your neighbour's household or anything in it that your neighbour owns. And if you truly understand what's going on here, if you study them in depth, they are, they're terrifying in a good way. They really are terrifying in a good way. They form the bedrock pretty much of every moral code that's ever come out since. And I think probably this afternoon, most of us would agree that the law as it's good, as it's given here, it's good and it's holy. And God gave that those laws, not because he wanted to spoil people's fun, but because he wanted this nation to be the royal priesthood, the holy nation that he fully intended. I mean, we would agree, I think, that, 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 that they're good and they're sound principles. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. It wasn't because God wanted to spoil anybody's fun, but because he wanted to protect people and enable them to be fully who he intended them to be. And if you take one of these, I mean, if you take, for instance, do not commit murder, for example, just think of the number of lives that have been lost through that alone, that one command. We don't have to dig far into our history across, or even across Europe. If you look at the start of World War I with the murder of Franz Duke Ferdinand and his wife by the Black Hand, it sparked World War I. Horrendous. It, dig into the Bible, look at the life of King David, an adulterer and a murderer, slept with Bathsheba, and then had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, murdered in battle. And here's the scary thing. Israel, God's chosen nation, they struggled to keep those commandments. And mankind as a whole has struggled to keep those and the question has to be asked, well, why? If something that was intended to be good and protect people, why? Why should it be so hard? And to unpack this a little bit further, you have to understand something about the sinful nature of man. If you backpedal from this story a little way and you look, for instance, at the first murder in the Bible, Cain and Abel. Remember Adam and Eve? They have these two sons. Cain is a farmer. He, you know, he, he produces um, fruit and vegetables and products of the ground. He's the firstborn. And then there's his brother, Abel, a keeper and a raiser of livestock, of animals. Well, they'd worked out that it was good to bring a sacrifice, to bring a gift and offer it to God. And Abel brings his gift you know, he brings the best of what he's got, or some of the best of what he's got. And the implication in the passage is that he does it just out of a sheer love response to the Lord. Here you are, Lord. Here's my offering. I hope you like it. And you can almost hear Cain in the background. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Mr. Perfect, got it all together. I suppose I better make an offering myself. Here you are, God, is some of my produce. And that's how the Bible words it. Cain bought some of his produce. Abel's sacrifice is accepted, and Cain's was not. And Cain, it, said, it says of Cain, he was downcast and angry. And God instigated a conversation with him. God instigated it, not Cain. He says, Cain, why are you so downcast? If you do well, if you choose well, then you'll be accepted. But if you don't, in other words, if you deliberately harbour sin, and if you deliberately entertain sin, then it's at your door, and its desire is for you. What is really striking about that story is the particular wording that God uses. It's brutally honest to Cain. The word that God uses, he says, sin's desire, your sinful nature, the desire is for you. In the Hebrew, the word is teshuka. It's essentially a word that is typically used to describe the desire between, or should describe the desire between husband and wife and wife for husband. And it's, it's kind of sexually charged. So the picture that God paints for Cain is he said, is that you have entertained, you have entertained the idea of sin, and now this beast, this sexually charged predator, is at your door and it wants to destroy you. And the phrase that God uses, at your door, it's the same as what appears in Revelation where Jesus. And we contrast it here where Jesus says, I stand at the door of your, of your life, effectively. I stand at the door and I, I knock. I'm not forcing my way in because I want relationship with you. Whereas this beast, this sinful nature, it wants to, it des, its desire is for you to destroy you. But God goes on to say to Cain, he says, but if you choose well, you can master this effectively. And we know from this story that Cain continues to make some bad choices. And, well, he, he ends up trying to, well, he ends up destroying the very image that he wants to be. And how does he do that? He murders his brother, Abel. And if all this isn't hard enough. Jesus then raises the standard. If you read in the New Testament, Matthew 5, verse 27, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, he's rightly said to commit adultery with her in his heart. It's probably most of us, fellas. And just in case you're sat here this afternoon and you're thinking, well, you know, I haven't committed any of those biggies. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. You know, I, I live a nice, clean life. Thank you very much. James, in chapter 2, warns us. He says, 
For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So in other words, you're as bad as the worst of them. And that, City Church, is the effect of sin. So what hope is there for us then? If our sinful nature is battering at the doors of our lives, wanting to get in and consume us, what do we do? It's a really good question. And the Apostle Paul wrestled with it too in Romans 7. If you get a chance, read Romans 7 this week because it's amazing. Paul acknowledged the sinful nature, what we are, what's in us, if you like, what's left to our own devices, that's what we, what, what we become. And Paul acknowledged, he said that the law given by God is right and good. And he recognized that the law was designed to bring life and freedom. But in reality, what it bought was death. He says in verse 11, sin took the occasion by the commandment and deceived me. And he goes on to say, for what I will to do, the good things I know that I should be doing because of the, the law, that's what the law instructs me to do. I don't do it. I don't practice it. But what I hate, that I do. And there's this whole wrestling going on. And he almost concludes in verse 24. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, he goes on to say, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What we've been looking at so far is the old Judaic, Old Testament law. And the law, as Paul so rightly observed, was weak in that it arouses our sinful nature and we go and break the law. I went down to London this week and the company I work for, they gave me this lovely car. I mean, it was really nice. It was a... a um, so I'm going into petrol head mode, but it was, a, it was a hybrid electric. And when you flick this thing into sport mode, wow, it went. And I got onto the M40 motorway at about quarter to seven in the morning. And I put the adaptive cruise control on 70 miles per hour because I didn't want to break the law. I was the slowest vehicle on the road. Even lorries were overtaking me. And I, I, there was part of me that was indignant, thinking, well, they're all doing it. Why don't I? But the standard is there not to be adjusted. It's a standard, and it's there for good reason. Jesus quoted the first commandment of the, uh, of the law when he was having an argument with the kind of the religious police in Matthew 22. They were trying to essentially entrap him in an argument. And they said, well, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And it's there effectively in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. He quotes to them the Shema. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Yahweh Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Number one 
on a list of one. Because our God is a jealous God. Number one on a list of one. I don't want, God wants no other one, no other God in, his, in your life. No other entity, no other deity, no other consumer image, capitalist idol before him. He wants to be number one. It was true then and it's true now. And if you make Jesus Christ number one in your life and love him with all your heart and accept that like Paul, without him, you are lost and wretched, he can and will defeat that sinful nature. In effect, he does it through Jesus like a giant vacuum cleaner. If we'll only acknowledge and admit our complete need for him and that without him we are lost. Like a giant vacuum cleaner, he will suck out all that debris, all the cock-ups, all the mess, all the wretchedness of our lives. And he will take it upon himself and become sin so that we go free. He will pay the penalty for you, for what you deserve, completely in full, no outstanding balance. And the most amazing transformation starts to take place. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. So this is the new covenant being instigated through Jesus. I'll put my laws in their hearts, I'll write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their lawless deeds. It's an exchange for all the things that we get wrong. Jesus will take them all. And if that were not enough, in Joel 2 verse 28, God promises to give us his Holy Spirit, to put his Holy Spirit upon us so that we can live a life that truly honors him. And this staggering thing in, in this exchange that takes place is that we actually fulfill the Old Testament law, not because we're trying to obey a list of do's and don'ts, but because we're so in love with him. And the Old Testament commandments actually become our promises. So where it says, do not commit murder, we don't commit murder. Do not commit adultery. No, we won't commit adultery. We won't steal. We won't blaspheme and take God's name in vain. Because that's the exchange that comes through and because of Jesus. It's no wonder Charles Wesley, the uh, hymn writer, he wrote, and I think it's one of the, verse three of one of his hymns. He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. Remember that? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, 
and followed thee. My chains, my chains fell off, my heart, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Father, we're not experts. I know I certainly am not. And I've come a long way since my moped riding days. But Lord, once again, we come before you and we recognize Abba, Father. And we rejoice this afternoon, Lord, that you have made a way possible for us to continually live in your presence because of what Jesus has done. And we rejoice this afternoon and we say, thank you, Jesus. And Lord, in the remaining time that we have together, we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you fall on each of us afresh. Lord, where there's things that we need to change, where there's, maybe where there's even transgressions that need to be put right, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, come and help us. In your holy name, amen.